Thanks, dude. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the Exchange. So glad you guys are here. Um, I'm really glad you guys are here. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you don't. I think um, I was told that the, our, the chillers were not working. So it's a little toasty. It's a little toast this morning. Um, actually, can we even just give it up for our volunteers who set up in the heat, even in the heat of the room? <laughs> It's one of those things where those who serve outside and set up all the, the banners and A-frames, they come inside to get refreshed, and then it's just hotter in here. So I felt bad for them, too. Um, but listen, bear with me. I know it's a little toasty, but this is good for us. This is good for our soul. Uh, we have to endure, this is like early church days, right? I mean, not really, but... Um, hey, do me a favor. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. If you would, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, but Philippians chapter 3, that's where we're at. Again, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you ones just so you can follow along with us and know what's happening, know what's going on. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. That is yours. Um, but Philippians 3. So I'm very excited for the text today. And let me just kind of catch up to speed on, on where we're at, uh, what's happening. There's little cards, by the way, uh, at your chair or on your chair. If you can just set that aside for a moment, I'll explain that at the end of service. And just a little precursor, a little warning to you all. We're actually going to close our time in prayer uh, together, all right, where you guys pray. I know a church that prays, crazy, right? We're going to do that. Um, so if you're not comfortable with praying, we're going to get into groups and you can listen and join in with others praying, but we want to pray at the end of our service and be intentional. Uh, but we are in Philippians 3, so let me just catch up to speed. Uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians, and really we've been studying how Paul, who's in prison, chained to a soldier 24-7, is writing a book about joy. And he's basically saying, what happens to you does not have to control you. That your circumstances do not have to determine your present joy. That you and I can have circumstances that are, seem to be failing around us, but we have a joy and a contentment and peace that is found in something so much greater than circumstances, and it's found in a person, and his name is Jesus. And I've been saying this every week, and I, I really hope that we can be this and get this, but we are calling this series A, a Colony of Heaven, because for many reasons, we see, I believe that one of the key verses is Paul saying that you are citizens of heaven. He says, hey, Philippians, I know you're a colony of Rome. I know as a colony of Rome, you're here to bring in Roman culture, Roman government, Roman law, Roman everything. But first and foremost, you're not a Roman citizen. You're a citizen of heaven. So bring in God's heavenly culture and heavenly law and, he and just bring heaven to earth. And so here's why this is so important for us as Americans. We are saying, hey, first and foremost, we are not Americans. We are followers of Jesus. And we want to bring heaven to earth. The reason why I say this every week, and the reason why you might be so sick of it, but the reason why I do this is because this is what it's all about. We're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're told to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a sense, the church is supposed to be a little extension of heaven to earth. So hopefully, when people come here, they go, wow, there's something different. People actually care about each other. They actually love each other. There's grace. There's, the God. there's something different here. Now, are we broken and flawed people? Absolutely. And we're all just sinners who are broken in need of a Savior, seeking Jesus, seeking his kingdom here, and that's our hope. Our hope is that this church locally could just be a little taste of heaven to earth, that we'd seek to bring God's kingdom to earth. Amen? And I'm going to say this every week. Because I don't want to miss the point. Our goal is to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think God does that through his church. And that is our hope. Our hope is to be an extension of heaven to earth. To lead people and saying, hey, there's something better than being a citizen of, of America. It's being a citizen of heaven. 
and Jesus offers that to all. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're going through. Now, if you're with us last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, and Paul kind of gave us his spiritual resume. Paul's saying, look, look at my life. Look at all that I was, all that I've done. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was blameless concerning the law. I was a great guy. He says, but all those things are garbage to me now that I know Christ. He goes, you know, basically he's saying uh, my three degrees from Harvard Law, the Nobel Prize I won, all of that is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is everything to me. He's basically, he told us his biography is past. And so the reason why I'm sharing that is Philippians chapter 3, as just an overview, seems to kind of be Paul's spiritual biography. So here's, we'll put this up here, but verse 1 through 11 was Paul's past. Verse 12 through 16, what we're going to study today is Paul's present. And next week, we're going to look at Paul's future as a citizen of heaven. And so Paul's kind of writing about his spiritual biography saying, here's my past, here's my present, here's what I'm living for, and here's where I will be one day. So that's Philippians 3, kind of like a big overview of this chapter. Now, here's what I love about this, and please do not miss this. Uh, In verse 12 through 16, what we're studying today, it's kind of like... um, Paul's secret sauce to ministry. I don't know. I've been watching a lot of Space Jam with my son. Uh, he talks about Michael's secret, secret stuff, and they drink the bottle. Uh, this, sorry, just so much Space Jam I've been watching. It's unreal. Um, but this, to me, is kind of that. It's Paul basically saying, here's my goal. Here's my drive. Here's my focus in life. Here's my motivation. Here, here's everything that, you want to know why I'm such a passionate, driven person? You want to know why I don't give up? Do you want to know why they can chain me to a soldier and I can still write about joy? Here's why. So verse 12 through 16 is kind of like the Rocky Balboa of Scripture. It's Paul waking up early in the morning, drinking the egg, saying, let's go. Uh, This is something for us where we want to, like, look at this in depth. I really do believe as we study this, we'll see that Paul is so far from being a complacent person as you can be. And so today we are going to look at just how not to be complacent. I mean, simply, the, the title or the focus today is Combating Complacency. It's Fighting Complacency, however you want to put it. But I think this passage of Scripture is saying, hey, are you a complacent person? Well, you want to know how not to be a complacent person? And I think this is so important for the church today. And we're going to look at this why. But I, I think in many ways, we can be a sleeping church. And Paul's saying, wake up. Wake up. I know it's hot in here, and you're going to get really tired. Wake up. <laughs> he's saying, don't be complacent. And he's saying, you're going to need to fight. You're going to have focus. You're going to have drive. Here's my drive. Here's my focus. Here's my one thing. And so let's read Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. We'll pray and look at it more in depth. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. Paul writes, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. (laughs) And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the decree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Really quick, verse 15 and 16. I'm not going to ask. He goes, if you're mature, I don't want to ask who's mature because that kind of just disregards everything. He goes, for those of you who are mature, you're going to have this mindset. This mindset I just communicated. The one thing I do I forget those things that are behind. I press toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes, if you're mature, you're going to have this mindset. If you don't, I pray God reveals this to you. 
But he's basically saying, everyone, I want everyone to have this mindset. So that is our prayer. That will be our prayer. That's what we talk about. Is God what we just read? Please just ingrain it into our hearts. Let us have the same drive and same focus as Paul. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we, um, we are so thankful for the example and life of Paul, but we are more importantly so thankful for the example and life of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is just is even more than an example, that he's our Savior, that he's Lord, that he's God. And, and we do ask, God, that you would give us this drive, this focus. God, we ask that despite... <laughs> not having AC, despite different things, Lord, that you just bring our full attention to your word at this moment. That Jesus, we'd not get distracted, we'd not lose sight. That Jesus, as we talk about complacency, that you would really stir within us, God, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a hunger to see your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And uh, we ask that you'd move in your name. Amen. All right, the word goal has been defined as the purpose towards which an endeavor or effort is directed. The purpose toward which an endeavor or effort is directed. Goal. Uh, what is your goal? What are your goals? I don't know if you've ha- you have goals currently. I've had many goals. Uh, some goals I've, I've attained, I've reached. Some goals I failed at epically. I have some ongoing goals right now that I'm trying to reach. Um, I've had some absolutely ridiculous goals that I go, I cannot believe that was a goal at one point in time in my life. Tell me about your goals. I want to know about your goals. I want you to think about your goals. Think about some goals you've had in your life. I mean, when I was a child, some of my goals, again, were just so far-fetched and so ridiculous. As an adult, I feel like God's honing on my goals. Now, I'll give you some silly goals that I had as a kid. Um, you know, in first grade, my goal was to get Lindsay Gardner to like me. That was my goal. In second grade is to get this girl named Samantha to like me. Filled up both of those. In third grade is to get this girl named Kara to like me, which I did not reach that goal either. I can remember them specifically, I can. In fourth grade is a different girl named Lindsay who also did not like me. And in fifth grade, it was a girl named Sharice. And in sixth grade, is a girl named Sharice. And in seventh grade, is a girl named Sharice. Never liked me. I've had these goals, right? Um, something changed in high school where I'm like, I'm going to give up my goals. And then I met my wife, Kimber. And her goal was to get me to like her and mission accomplished, babe. That was, you've reached your goal. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> true, but not, no. Uh, but I've had different goals that I go, why was that a goal? You know, why, why was I pursuing that? Why was I chasing after that? What was that about? I have goals that I go, this is a good goal. This is, I believe, is a heavenly goal. This is an inspired by God goal. My question is, what is your goal? What are some goals God has given you? What are some drives or passions God has given you? Have you actually put action steps to those goals? The thing is, just because you have a goal doesn't mean it's a good goal. We all have goals. That it could be self-serving. It could be selfish. It could just be a goal. It might not be a good goal. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Paul tells us his goal. Paul's basically saying, here's my goal. Here's what I want to attain to. Here's what I want to arrive at. If Paul tells us his goal, let's focus on Paul's goals. I would say that Paul's goals should probably be our goals. And here's what's so important about this, because I want us to get this today, and something I'm trying to communicate is nothing will stop you from reaching your goal faster than complacency. Nothing's going to stop you from reaching your goal faster than just being okay with where you're at. The idea of complacency, uh, just we'll put a simple definition for you. Complacency means it's a feeling of smug, like a smug satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. A smug satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. There's an idea where you're just like, I'm okay. I'm pretty good with where I'm at. Let me just say this. Um, Complacency and contentment are different. In a few weeks, we are going to specifically look at contentment. 
but they are different. You see, they, I think what Paul, what Paul is saying is, um, I am satisfied with Christ, but I'm dissatisfied with the world. I think if you and I could like, look at content, I want everyone here to be a content person, but not a complacent person. How do we be satisfied with Christ and be content? But how do we not be satisfied with the world? How do we have a, a desire to actually change things and see things changed? Can I even point this out that dissatisfaction can be a good thing? Can we like, acknowledge that? Not, not being satisfied with something the way it is is a good thing so often. So you might have bad health and you're dissatisfied with your bad health and you want to get into good health. Someone was dissatisfied with crossing the Atlantic by boats and be going, I, we need to invent something that flies. Like dissatisfaction can create things, invent things, inspire things. Dissatisfaction so often is good. And here, here's what I see. Paul was dissatisfied with the, th- the way the things were, the way the things of the world was. He was dissatisfied with the world and the way it was. Paul's like, we got to change something. We got to do something about this. You see, I really do believe Satan's goal is not just to say, how can I get Christians or people to sin or be far from God? But I think it's how can I get Christians to even be complacent? You know, one person said it this way, Satan is really good at singing lullabies to the church. He's really good at singing lullabies and getting us to go to sleep. So we're missing out on the action. So we're missing out on, maybe we're just always being defensive and never being offensive. Maybe we're never fighting for the kingdom, seeking to advance the kingdom of God because we're just asleep. My hope is today is that if you see that you are complacent in your spiritual journey and you go, you know what? I'm pretty good with where I'm at with God. Let me say, there is more. For all of us, there's more. I don't want to assume at 30 years old, I've experienced everything there is to experience in Christ. I don't want to assume that the Holy Spirit has given me everything he's wanted to give me or done everything he's wanted to do in my life by no means. Guys, there's more for me. There's more for you. I'd say we cannot be complacent with where we're at. There's a side of this where I'm saying, please be content with Christ, but please be discontent with the world. And we need to have this desire to like, let's do something. Let's be motivated. So what was Paul's drive? What was Paul's focus? So here's honestly how I'm going to try to break down the text. It's simply kind of five ways on how not to be complacent. All right, five ways on how not to be complacent. And we'll use the text by doing this. So let's look at the first way to not be complacent. Number one is this thought. You're not done yet. (laughs) I'm not done yet. All right, don't be complacent. Why? You're not done yet. You are not done yet. Look at verse 12. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. First phrase, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Verse 13, the first part, he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Here's what Paul's saying. You're not done yet. I'm not done yet. He goes, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. There are some things in my life I can still experience in Christ. I haven't experienced everything there is to experience in the Lord. I haven't arrived yet. I'm not perfect yet. I'm not there yet. Now, you would think if there's one person you could say this would be Paul. I mean, think about Paul. I mean, Paul planted churches like it was just nothing. He just planted churches. Paul was literally caught up into heaven. Paul wrote 13 or 14 books of the New Testament. I mean, if you think there's someone who could say, hey, I've arrived, guys, it'd it'd be Paul. And Paul's like, I'm not even there yet. I'm so far from where I want to be. I mean, have you guys thought about even just Paul's life? Like what he went through for the gospel and he still says, I have not arrived. We have like Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 11. I'm just going to throw it up here. Here's some things Paul went through uh, for Christ. And it's similar to what we read even last week, but it's different. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 22, he goes, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. 
in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, huh? Um, from, the, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Listen to what Paul went through. Paul's like, I, I've been beaten five different times. 39 times I've been, I've been beaten on my back. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned to death. Acts 14 came back to life. He goes, I've gone through all of this. And then he says, I've not arrived yet. Philippians 3, brethren, I have not reached it yet. I still have room to grow in my faith. I still have room to grow my walk with the Lord. And this is so encouraging to me. Because I think so many of us, we can be like, well, I'm just content with where I'm at. With God. And it's like, but there's so much more. There is more. Paul is saying he's not satisfied with the world, but he's satisfied with Christ. He wasn't, he, here's, I guess, another way for, for me, I want, I want to put it, is this. Um, Paul humbly knew where he was at with God, and Paul did not have a false idea of where he was at. So here's what the Bible often says, and I'll put it this way. The Bible talks a lot about, in a sense, a false estimation of our spiritual condition. And please hear this. The Bible talks a lot about our, a false estimation of our spiritual condition. So for example, here's what I mean by that. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to seven churches. And he, and he says to this church named Sardis, the city of Sardis, he goes, hey, all of those in Sardis, I know you think you're alive, but you're really dead. To the Laodiceans. He says, hey, Laodiceans, I know you think you're really rich, but you're really poor. And on the other hand, to the church of Smyrna, a persecuted church, he says, I know that you think you're poor, but you're incredibly rich. See, I do believe the Bible talks a lot about a false estimation of our spiritual condition. Some of us think, man, I'm pretty good. I'm doing good. I, I'm rich. And Jesus says to that church, you're poor. Other churches that go, we have nothing. We're just being beaten down. We're being persecuted. He goes, but you're rich. My point is I think we all have an opportunity to, to err in, in one of two ways. Either th we think too highly of ourselves or we think too lowly of ourselves. I think we might think that we're the Messiah to the church and we're here to solve all the church's problems and I can fix all things. Or we just think so lowly of ourselves, God can never use me. Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know what, what I've done to other people? And I think that there's this idea, not even like a middle ground, but this gospel lens it's not thinking too highly or too lowly. It's not thinking of yourself at all. <laughs> it's embracing the person of Jesus and what he says about you, who he says you are. Not that you think too highly or too lowly, but what does God say about you? How does God define you? See, I think this is so important for us because we all fall into this category. My fear is that some of you do think too highly and some of you do think too lowly and you miss out on what God's trying to do. Paul is just simply saying, I haven't arrived yet. I, I know I've made progress, but I haven't arrived yet. Uh, a guy named John Newton, we know him because he wrote Amazing Grace, and that's kind of how we know him. You know, slave trader, literally sold humans. He's a slave trafficker, human trafficker, turned follower of Jesus. And we, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? We know that story. Here's what he said about his spiritual state. And I thought this is so spot on. He says this, Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. 
a slave to sin and Satan. And I, I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think this is, this is so spot on. He goes, I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be, what I hope to be. But I can tell you I'm not what I was. I can tell you that Jesus Christ has saved me. There's been progress. There's been growth. I think, again, for some of us, there's maybe this awareness. We need to have awareness of where we're really at. I would say take spiritual inventory on your life. Don't have a false estimation of your spiritual condition. Some of you right now maybe just need God. You need to be born again. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We want you to know Jesus. We know that Jesus is speaking to you. We know that Jesus loves you. We know that Jesus wants to save you. Some of you have been around the church, and you're just kind of lullaby to sleep. You've grown up in the church, around the church, and maybe you just become critical, cynical over time. Maybe you I like it back then. I liked it th- this way. And God's saying, hey, wake up. Be offensive. Hey, like, participate in bringing God's kingdom to earth. Don't just be on the defensive. I'm not sure where you're at today, but I do believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak to all of us, myself included, and saying, hey, you have not arrived yet. <laughs> you're not where you're supposed to. You, there's room to grow. But can I tell you, I'm also not where I was. By God's grace, as, Paul, as he said, and as Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Thank you, God. John Newton, I used to, I used to sell humans. I was a slave to Satan and sin. It was absolutely disgusting. He goes, but I'm not what I was. And I'm not where I want to be. And I think that's where we're trying to express today. We're not where we want to be or hope to be or ought to be, but we're also not where we were. I hope there's been growth and development in that. So listen, how do we not be complacent? First of all is this, you're not done yet. Don't get complacent in your faith because God's not done with you yet. Amen? What does Paul say earlier in this book? He says, God began a good work in you. He'll be faithful to complete it. He's not done yet. You're not done yet. Number two, when it comes to complacency is this thought. Uh, You're saved for a reason. And please hear this and please do not miss this thought. You and I are saved for a reason. We're saved for many reasons, but we're saved also for a specific reason. I want to put up the verse. It's verse uh, 12. At the end of verse 12, what does Paul write? We'll put the verse up here. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Okay, do not miss this. He goes, I want to lay hold. I want to grasp why God grasped me. I want to lay hold of why God laid hold of me. Paul's like, I'm saved. God saved me for a reason. I want to figure that out. I want to discover that. I want to seek that out. Now, let's just first and foremost acknowledge this, this part. He goes, Christ has laid hold of me. Can we just all acknowledge that Christ has laid hold of us? Josiah, do you know what you're saying? Can I just tell you that God first loved us? Why do we love God? First John 4, because he first loved us. Can I tell you that Christ pursued you way before you ever pursued him? Christ was chasing after you, pursuing you, and for some people, like, this, this is mentally difficult, and they struggle with this thought. They're like, well, I also believed in Christ, but, how did, but he pursued me. You know, let, I'll just leave it this simple little statement. I, I love what Ironside said, H.A. Ironside, this commentator. He said this. He goes, imagine a door, and there's, a, there's this door, and on the door frame, it, something Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come to me on the front of this door frame. So you walk through the door frame. Like, okay, I want to come. I walk through the door frame, and you turn around on the other side of the door frame. It says, for you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. I don't fully get it. I don't fully grasp it, but I love that analogy. Where Jesus says, who's the world? Let him come to me. And you're like, okay, I come to you, Jesus. And you look back and you say, oh, but I've not chosen you. You've chosen me. Okay. Before the foundations of the world, you chose me, God. I accept that. I agree with that. Let me just say this. Christ, I pray, has laid hold of you. My question is, has Christ laid hold of you? Paul, understand Paul. Paul was once Saul. 
If you read the book of Acts in chapter 8, he's literally persecuting and killing Christians in Acts 8. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, who turns into Paul, Saul's on the road, on the way to Damascus. This bright light appears. He hears this heavenly voice. It's Jesus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul's persecution of the church is like, Jesus, it's as as if you're persecuting me. And then Jesus said this to Saul. He goes, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Like, what's a goad? A goad was like a prod, like a stick, a sharp stick, where you'd prod an animal in a certain direction, and if the animal kicked against it, it would hurt extra, the sharp stick, and they kick it, and it's like, ah, okay. And he goes, you've been kicking against this prod. I've been prodding you, trying to bring you to me, point you to me. You've been kicking against it, and then ultimately one day, Jesus literally shows up, and he goes, no more. Saul's blinded. God sends a messenger to Saul to receive his sight, to believe in Jesus, and his life was forever changed. Can I point this out? Paul gets this. He goes, Jesus, you literally laid hold of my life. You stopped me in my tracks and blinded me. You laid hold of me. Now I want to lay hold of why you laid hold of me. My thing is this. Have you had an encounter with Jesus? And I'm not just saying to say, have you had Saul's encounter? Have you had an encounter with Jesus? Have you had an encounter with Jesus where he says, no more, no more. The lifestyle you're living, no more. It's not satisfying you. You're miserable. It's miserable to try to serve me and serve your flesh. Like, no more. Have you had a moment yet where Jesus has spoken to you and says, you're mine, you're all mine, follow me, give me everything you got. Paul says, I was once kicking against Jesus, fighting, persecuting the church. He laid hold of me, and now I want to discover and lay hold of why he laid hold of me. And here's the thought, you are saved for a reason. God has saved you for a reason. Now, let's be honest. Let's talk big picture. Um, We are saved to know God, enjoy God. We are saved to have a deep relationship and intimacy with God, absolutely. Um, you are saved because Jesus wants to spend eternity with you, not eternity apart from you in hell, away from God. You're saved for a reason, yes, to enjoy God, to glorify God, absolutely, but can I even make it more specific? You're saved for a specific reason. You're saved for a reason. You know, Paul would say about his own testimony, and here's why I say this. If you would write this verse down, Paul shares his reason, I believe, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, we'll throw the verse up here. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. What here Paul says, he goes, this is a faithful saying. Everyone should say this. Um, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the biggest sinner of them all. I think that's a good saying we could all practice, right? Because someone's like, no, he came to save sinners. That's the biggest sinner. Like, no, no, this is good. I'm the biggest sinner of all. Christ came to save me. This is a good thing for all of us to embrace. He goes, however, I want you to see Christ. Look at how he said it. He saved me as a pattern as for those who are going to believe. Basically, Paul's saying, hey, church, if God can save me, he can save anyone. If God can save the guy who's dragging Christians out of their homes and murdering them, if God can save that guy, he can save anyone in this place. I don't want anyone to think they're too far from God, they've done too much, but the things I've done in secret, just saw you have no idea how dirty, disgusting it was. The things I've done publicly, you have no idea. Can I tell you, if God can save Saul, he can save you. If God can save a guy who's terrorizing the church and killing them, God can save you. God can save me. Paul's saying, you want to know why I'm saved? I'm saved as a pattern to show everyone that God's long-suffering and mercy is available to all. I mean, again, I have no idea. I have no idea what some of your stories are and what you've gone through or what you've done, but I know that Jesus can save you. I've talked to many Jews about Jesus, and they go, why would I leave Judaism? Uh, why would I abandon my family? Why would I abandon my heritage? And can I tell you, Saul was the, a Jew of Jews, 
Saul was a leader amongst the Jewish people. He didn't view it as abandoning his, his Judaism. He viewed it as being a, becoming a fulfilled Jew, a believing in the Messiah that came to save all. And I don't know your story or your background, but I do believe Jesus can and will save you. I do believe that Jesus longs to save you. I believe that Jesus desires that none should perish and all should come to repentance. I'd say, listen, believe on Jesus. If God's spirit is speaking to you, believe on him. Here's why I'm saying this again. You're saved for a reason. Do not get complacent. Now, church, please don't miss this. What about you? Why has Jesus plucked you out of the depths of hell and brought you into his marvelous light and made you a citizen of heaven? Why? And I would say, first and foremost, enjoy Jesus, know Jesus, but also participate in that. God wants to use you and your story to reach people who don't know Jesus yet. You're saved for a reason. You're not just saved now to go to church for the rest of your life and then die. You're not. You and I are saved for a reason. And, there's a, and I believe that reason is to also join God in this process, process of making all things new and bringing people to him. Amen? And Paul says, listen, don't get complacent. Number three, um, here's a real good reason how not to get complacent. Number three is this. The less you do, the better you'll do it. The less you do, the better you'll do it. All right? The less you do, the better you'll do it. How do you not get complacent? The less you do, the better you'll do it. What do I mean? Paul says in verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. All right, don't miss this. The, the words I do are not even there. Paul says, guys, I have not made it yet, but one thing. He's literally saying, but one thing. Now, before we read what that one thing is, Know that this is so key that Paul lived by this thought of one thing motivates and governs and drives his life. When Paul says one thing, I would pay attention to that one thing. Paul, who is successful in this Christian faith, I would say, okay, what's Paul's you know, secret sauce in a sense? He goes, here's the one thing. And here's kind of the point. Um, elimination is essential to concentration. Elimination is essential to concentration. There's so many ways we could talk about this. You know, before we move on from this thought, I just want to say, like, if, if people who I respect or you respect, if they said, here's the one thing I do that leads to my success, I'd really pay close attention. So if Michael Jordan was like, yo, you want to know why I'm Michael Jordan and they're not? Like, I'd be like, yeah, tell me. Like, what is the one thing? If Jeff Bezos or Mark Cuban says, here's my one thing I do that separates me from everyone to become the business guru that I am, we would pay attention. Here's Paul saying, here's one thing I do. One thing. You know, I was watching um, Shark Tank I don't know if you guys have ever seen that show or watched that show. I like that show. Sorry. But I was watching Shark Tank the other day where people kind of pitch their ideas of a product and, you know, Mark Cuban's one of the sharks. There's all these, sh these sharks who are saying, yeah, I like your product. I want to be an investor. Whatever. Uh, there's this couple that stands before all the sharks and they had a great product. And as they're being asked just a ton of questions, they're saying, what's your business plan? And they answer and say, well, we're going to go online. We're going to go to retail. We're gonna do and I was listening to this couple kind of ramble on and on. And all of them said, you're too busy you're too dis distracted. You do too much. I cannot partner with you. You need to focus on one thing and do it well. And all of them like said, and they said a lot, you need to do one thing and do it well. And I think this is just a very true thing in the Christian life. Let me just say this, because I don't want to also minimize this. You might think, do one thing, but I'm a college student. I have like a million things to do. But one thing, I'm a parent. I have a 10 million things to do. How do I just do one thing? This is not so much a list as much as a lens to live by. When Paul says one thing I do, he's not saying here's the list of one thing. He's saying here's the lens in which I view everything. So the lens in which I view everything is through this gospel lens. So if I can encourage everyone, you, we have a big list of things we got to do, but how do we view it from this gospel-centered lens of what is most important amongst those many things? 
And there's one lens I pray we'd all adopt. And here's Paul's thing. And he says one thing, and then he kind of says two things. And I like that. It's like a coin. He's like, oh, one thing, two sides. Here's what he says, number four. Forget and move on. Forget and move on. One thing I do. And he essentially says two things, but it's like one thing. Forget and move on. All right, let's read what he says. Forget and move on. Verse 13. Again, we'll just read it. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, how do I not be complacent? One thing, forget and move on. Forget and move on. Forget those things that are behind. I think this is a word for all of us. All of us in this room need to forget the things that are behind. All of us in this room are haunted by past decisions, or maybe we're haunted by yesterday's glory days. All of us, though, need to forget some things. Here's why I do think um, this is so important. The word forget means uh, to no longer, let me get the right definition. Forget means to no longer be influenced or affected by. I'm no longer going to be influenced or affected by my past. This is what Paul's saying. You see, I think that for all of us, there are either things that were done to us or things we've done. I think all of us fall into both of those categories. I could be the victimizer and the victim at the same time. There are things that you've done. There's things that others, others have done to you. And Paul is saying through the gospel, I'm going to encourage you to no longer be influenced or affected by the past. That's what forget is. Not that you can literally forget. We're not like some computer where we can like click and drag a file and drop it in the garbage and be like, forgot. Like we can't do that. But he's literally saying, do, do not be influenced or affected by the past anymore. Psalm 103 put it this way. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, God has, so far has God removed our sins from us. Some of you need to, this, like today, honestly, through the gospel and the grace of Jesus, need to forget, no longer be influenced or affected by the past, things that others have done to you to hurt you or things you've done to hurt others. Because it's influencing your present too much. It's shaping your presence too much. Maybe you can't move forward in your marriage because of some past thing. Maybe you can't move forward in your work because of some employee thing. Wh- whatever it is, it's say don't be influenced or affected by the past anymore. You need to forget those things. Of course, you're going to remember them but you're choosing not to view that person that light anymore. Isaiah 43, verse 25, uh, it was written this way. God said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says, I, I I blot out your sins for my sake. I'm not going to remember your sins. Is it that God does not remember our sins, or is it the idea that God is choosing not to look at you through your sins any longer? God's like, I'm choosing not to look at you through your sins any longer. I'm choosing not to view you from this perspective any longer. I've blotted this out. Your sins, I remember no more. Can I say, if God doesn't remember our sins anymore, why do we so often bring them up? I want to say, listen, forget and move on. Can I encourage you with a thought that I just absolutely love? If you've ever read the book of Hebrews and you get to Hebrews 11 and we call it the hall of faith, like it talks about Abraham and Sarah, Rahab, you know, know all these great men and women who had these great acts of faith. Read that chapter again. Can, can I tell you why? When you read that chapter again, it's filled with sinful people who did some pretty disgusting things. I mean, murders are in that hall of faith. Harlots are in that hall of faith. I mean, it's filled with some pretty disgusting people. Can I tell you in Hebrews 11, not one time is their sins mentioned. I think that is so beautiful that in the New Testament, you don't see God bring up their sins. He says, look at their faith. Look at their faith. 
That is so encouraging to me. In Hebrews 11, people that have killed people, murdered people, incest, disgusting things, and he goes, look at their faith. God says, I remember your sins no more. I take this serious. I don't remember their sins anymore. I'm no longer choosing to view you in that light anymore. See, again, with the idea of forget, I think some of us are haunted by our past, and some of us maybe live in the glory days, which can be frustrating. I am one of the most nostalgic people you'll probably ever meet. It's probably, like, very, I'm like 30 years old, I'm back like I'm 80. I'm like, well, in the good old days when I played basketball, like, it's just pathetic, I know. Like, I love to, like, rehash memories with friends. I love to get back together with my friends and talk about the good old days. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I think this happens spiritually. It's like, well, look what God did in 1970. With the, you know. It's like, okay, move on. What is God doing today? How can you be part of that today? How do we not wallow in yesterday's sins, but how do we also not glory in yesterday's deeds? H- how do we move on? How do we say, I forget those things? You see, I think one person put it this way, and I think this is so true that all of us need to hear. He said, we break the power of the past by living for the future. We break the power of the past by living for the future. Listen, some of you need to hear this. Break the power of the past by living for the future, what God has called you to currently, what God has called you to ultimately. Paul says, one to my secret, one to what drives me, I'm forgetting that I used to persecute murder Christians. I don't think if you ask Paul, Paul, weren't you a Pharisee? He's like, I don't, I don't remember, actually. I, I kind of forget. I don't think he, he forgets, like, his story. But he's, I'm not going to be influenced or affected by, yes, I did persecute the church. I wonder if Paul ever got up and preached the gospel and thought about Stephen, who he helped stone. I wonder if he ever thought about the first Christian martyr, and he's like, I helped do that. But Paul is actually saying, no, I don't. I'm not going to be influenced or affected by that past. Even all the churches I've planted, I still <laughs> I have more things to do. I've not arrived yet. He's no longer being influenced or affected by the past. I really do believe, I really do believe in preparation and prayer, I believe our whole church needs to hear this. I really do believe some of you are being influenced by your past too much. The things happening to you, the things you've done, and God wants to remind you whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That, that he's blotted out your sins as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed those sins. Some of you need to be reminded and encouraged of that. And he says, not only do I forget, but he says this, I move on, I move on. He goes, I press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. I press. That word press, if you want to circle, it just means an intense endeavor. He's basically saying, I gave everything I had to move forward. Like, it took some, it took some action. I couldn't just be passive about it. Let me just say this. You can't just like, yes, your sins are forgiven and it's passive, it happens to you. But now he's like, now I got to be active. Now I got to be proactive and I got to press toward the goal. Um, I don't know if you've ever, has anyone ever like ran a 10K half marathon, full marathon, a walk around the block, anything, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I like run to the ice cream truck, man. That's like my running. But if you think about the idea of like pressing on, if you've ever been there, honestly, if you've ever been there, and you're so tired and you're so exhausted, and everyone's kind of talks about that runner's wall, maybe just even working out, you hit that wall. There's this idea where Paul's like, I've hit that wall over and over again, but I just press on, I press on, I press on. With in this intense endeavor, with everything I got, I press on. There's a side of the gospel where you go, yes, there's some passive things that happen to you. You are forgiven. You are set free. That We sing about the chains fall. All of that stuff is very true. But then there's this proactive stuff. Now press on. He goes, I, press to- I give everything I got to press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I give everything I got. To go back to verse 10 in Philippians 3, he goes, that I may know him. He goes, I press toward the goal of what? To know him. Can I tell you something really quick? If you want to circle the word prize in verse 14, that might throw some of you off. Paul's not talking about salvation. Salvation is never called a prize, by the way. He's not saying, I'm working really hard so I can have the prize of salvation. Salvation's never a prize. It's always called a gift. Because a gift is something that's just given to you. You don't earn it. It's a gift that's given. This prize Paul is talking about is something after that. 
Paul is saying, now the life that God has given me in Christ, I want to use that life well because how I live this life matters. So, for example, the language Paul is using, Paul does like sport. Paul uses a lot of sport terminology in his letters, which I really appreciate. And Paul is basically talking about this idea of the prize. He's literally referring to Olympic Games, where after a runner, let's say, competed and won the race, they would go up and stand on the bema seat, and they would meet the king, they'd meet the emperor, and they'd be given like a wreath or a crown placed on their head. And he's like, I'm pressing, I'm working hard because I want that prize. I want the crown. Jesus put it in different parables in the same way. Jesus talked about the parable of the minas. And he basically said, there's 10 servants. Everyone got one mina. Basically, everyone got three months of wages. Everyone got three months of wages. And some people turned that one mina into 30 months of wages. Some people turned it into nine months of wages. Some people buried it in the ground. And Jesus is basically saying, listen, what are you doing with what God has given you? God has given you something. God has given you gifts and talent. What is your mina? Is it your children, your job, your resources, your time, your energy, your money? What has God given you? Probably all of it. And the idea is saying, I want to take what God has given me and I want to do it well. I I want that prize. I want to compete with everything I got. I want the prize. It's not that he wants salvation. Salvation's a gift. I'm so glad. So glad for that. Salvation's a gift that's given. It's not a prize that's earned. So he's like, I have salvation, but I want to take what God has given me and I want to stand on that Bema seat before my king and I I want to get that prize. The upward call of God. I want to fulfill the call of God in my life. Of just Christ Jesus of knowing Jesus, of being with Jesus. Jesus is my prize. The prize of just enjoying Jesus forever. Again, I've said this, but this is so important because I think in the American church, we look at heaven as streets of gold and like food forever and a new body, which is like true and great. But the prize of heaven in a sense is just Jesus, knowing Jesus, being with Jesus, enjoying Jesus. You know, I've said this, but I love that Samuel Rutherford quote, if I were to go to heaven and Jesus was not there, that would be hell to me. And if I were to go to hell and Jesus was there, that would be heaven to me. Because heaven is a person. <laughs> heaven is more of a person than it is a place. It's just, I want to be with Jesus. The prize, upward call of God in Christ Jesus is Jesus. Do you long for Jesus in this way? Do I long for, like, what are we really trying to do here? What are we really trying to attain here? I just want to make sure I go to heaven and not hell. No. It's so much more than that. <laughs> Could you imagine, look at your, your spouse. I just want to be married. I don't really care who, if it's to you or someone else. I just want to be married. It's like, no. It, it matters. Like, it's to you. Like, there's a side of like, you, Jesus, you're what I crave. You're what I'm longing for. You're what I want. And he goes, I just, this prize of, of, of just knowing Jesus. Listen, how do we not be complacent? He goes, forget and move on. Press toward. Give everything you got to this. Church, I, was, I would say this. Let's not be a complacent church. Let's not just be okay with mediocre Let's not just be okay with, well, I did my duties this week. I shared the gospel kind of with some person. I think that's pretty good. I hit my quota. Like, let's just not be okay with, like, mediocre Christian living. Paul's saying, I press toward the goal that we're called God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He goes, hey, and as many as you are mature, you'll have the same mind. You'll embrace this. What I'm describing, you'll take on. Hey, if you're not mature, you won't take on this mindset. That's okay. That's Paul's basically saying it that way. But those who are mature, he goes, will take on this mindset. And here's the last thing, like a last little bonus point of how not to be complacent is number five is you are your only competition. You're not competing against me. You're not competing against someone else in this church. You are, your own, you are running your race. I would say run your race. Run your race well. Ultimately, like we're running together, but it's not like I beat you. It's not that. This is not some competition. The dangers when the church compares itself. Why do they get to experience that? Why do they get to be, why do they get to be a leader? It's like run your race. Run your race that God has given you. Do it well. Jesus ran his race, and Jesus ran his race really well, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, 
this is what the author says to us, who I think is Paul, and he said, looking, listen, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. Know why? Jesus ran his race well. He looked at the cross, and he despised the shame. He goes, the joy that's set before me, the joy of being with my father, the joy of being with the people that I've died for, the joy of being with the people I paid the, their sins for, the joy that's set before me, I'm going to endure the cross that way. I'm going to run my race well. And the author's saying, now you look to Jesus. He ran his race well. You just look at Jesus, stare at Jesus, be focused on Jesus. Here's, the, again, the big overview of today. Paul says, I have not arrived yet. I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but I forget those things that are behind, and I press forward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, what we do and how we live matters and is remembered and remembered greatly. One, one quick story, one quick thought. In the book of Numbers, if you guys remember, God called Moses and the, the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they're wandering the wilderness. And if you guys remember in the book of Numbers, God's like, hey, go over to the promised land that I've set aside for you. And, and basically, they sent out 12 spies to scout the land. And if you guys remember the story, the 12 spies come back to Moses, and there's 12 spies, and they give the report of the land. And there's two spies that say, this is our land. God has given it to us. We can take it. This is our land. God has promised it. Let's take it. Those two spies were, anyone? I can say it for all my Bible scholars here. This concerns me. Um, it's okay. I forgive you. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, right? Kind of, it's all right. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, Joshua and Caleb. Now I remember. All right. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, hey, this land that God promised us is ours. Let's take the land. Now there were 10 spies who said, this is not our land. We cannot take the land. The people in the land are giants. They're really big. I mean, we, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. This is literally what they said. How can we take the land? We're, we're grasshoppers in their eyes. And if you guys remember, because of their unbelief, they couldn't enter into the promised land. The only two people that entered into the promised land were who? Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> and here's why I bring this up. I have tried to go back to Numbers and reread that over and over again and memorize one of those 10 spies' names. I just can't. If I asked you, tell me one of the 10 spies' names that didn't believe the promise of God. If you had a hard time with Joshua and Caleb, you're going to have a really hard time with that one. No one, no one can remember one of the 10 spies. I, I, and whenever I've asked them, like, hey, can you tell me one of the 10 spies that didn't believe God? No one remembers their names. I mean, they're there, but they are forgotten. And here's my point. Um, those who take steps of faith for God are remembered. Those who pressed on, those in the Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, those who say God has promised it, let's believe it. God has said it, we're going to act upon it. Those are remembered in Hebrews 11. Those are the ones allowed into the promised land. My point is this. Let's not just be on the defensive. Let's press on. Let us say, hey, God has promised us. Let's take the land. Hey, I don't care if there's giants and we're grasshoppers. God has said this is our land. Let's take the land. Hey, church, this is what we want to do. We want to just pray over for South Florida. I do believe that God is willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And I do believe we should join God in praying for the souls of lost people and praying for God, South Florida is yours. South Florida is yours. Every street down this road is yours. That house that is the psychic house is yours. Everything is yours. Everything is, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. Nothing is the enemy. This is all the Lord's. And I want to join you in just reaching people from your name. I want people to know you. So the reason why we have these little cards out today, and you can grab that and look at that. If you want to look at your little card, we have one here. If you want to look at this little card, it just says pray and invite. Write the names of people you would like to invite uh, to Easter and commit to praying for them. So here's what we are going to do. 
we are two weeks away from Easter. We're 12 days away from Good Friday. We want to pray that God saves people. I, I am going to ask that you would, like, right now, not leave this place without writing down at least two names, two to three names. I have two names for me that I am praying for the next two weeks. Um, I'm going to be doing this. This is my plan. I'm going to pray for this person up until Wednesday before Good Friday, like the next 10 days. I'm going to go to them because I know where they work, and I'm going to say, hey, this is going to sound crazy to you, but I have your name on this little card. I've been praying for the last 10 days. Would you please come to Easter uh, service with me? I'm just going to do it that way. You can do it however you want, but I'm going to encourage you to pray over this card and some family members, some friends, some neighbors. Write them down by name. Put this in your pocket. Pull it out. Pray over those names. Jesus, they're yours. Save them. And I'm going to ask that you invite them out to Easter. They invite them out to Good Friday. Let them hear the story of the cross and the story of the resurrection. I believe that we're just called to get the word of God out there and let God do his work. And so I'm going to ask that you guys would. So here's what we're really going to do right now. We're gonna, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to have some like worship. Just like kind of like we did last week with communion. Worship's going to be going on. I think there's some pens at the end of some aisles. Uh, if you can just share a pen, but pass it down, write a name on this, and then do this. I'm going to make it really uncomfortable. Um, would you guys actually find someone next to you? And if you see someone like alone, just say, hey, can we pray over the names you wrote down? And not that everyone has to pray, but I just I say that get in a little group and have one person be the designated prayer over the cards. And so, listen, find someone, two, three, four people. Say, let's pray over these names. Let's pray that God would save them. Let's pray that when we invite them, that they would say, you know what, I, I want to go. Maybe God does something in their heart where they're like, yeah, I think I should go this Easter. So I'm going to ask that we just pray over these names, that we press on, that we move forward and say, God, we're, we're saying that these people are yours. They belong to you. So I'm going to pray. You're immediately going to write down some names. <laughs> You're not going to leave. And then honestly, like right when I'm done praying, write the names down. Say, hey, I have my names to you. Not yet. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> but whatever, we just want to spend some time in prayer, okay? We're going to ha have some worship. I'm going to come back up, give some closing thoughts, and then we'll let you guys go. But can we really pray over these names? Can we really seek God and call upon God and say, God, save, save now. Hosanna, save, save now. Can we do that, please? Let's spend some time in prayer, all right? I'm going to pray. You're going to have a pen. You're going to write names down. We're all going to do this together. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you first and foremost that you saved us. Lord, if there's anyone in this place who, who does not know you, Jesus, I just, I just ask that as they heard your word, as they just even maybe have heard about you before, that Jesus, they would trust in you, they would look to you, that you would just be that they're, you're their Lord in every area of their life. God, I ask as we just write some names down, as we talk to people next week, God, that there would be a sensitivity to your spirit in how we communicate and how we share, that God, your spirit would be at work and someone just says, yeah, I'll go with you. And Lord, I just do ask that as the word is preached, that you would just save, that you'd open up eyes and ears. We cannot control this, God. We cannot manipulate this, but we just trust God as your word is declared, that as we sow the seed, that God, you will bring the fruit, that you will do what you do. And so Lord, I ask, give us boldness. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. So God, I just do ask that as we write these names down, as we pray over these names, that spirit, you'd show up, that this would be something where we cannot say man did this, but this was by the spirit of God. So we're here to call upon you now in your name. So please write some names down. Find someone around you and honestly just start praying. We have like one song. Pray immediately, all right? Write some names down, find some around you, and let's start praying over these names.